Good morning. I'm Alan McCarter with the uh, Airbus Group, and I want to thank uh, uh, Barry for the opportunity to help introduce this this very important report. I, I don't think there's anybody in our whole Washington, D.C. community think tank uh, community that, that creates more comprehensive and, and thoughtful reports than the Atlantic Council of International's uh, Bre uh, Brett Scowcroft Center on International Security. Europe, and, and in fact our entire transatlantic community, are facing some really serious issues. Security, cultural issues, and economic issues. This report describes the important role of NATO and further describes and details the European situation, the options, the risks, the consequences, and offers recommendations for both Europe and the U.S. So Airbus is very pleased to work closely with ACI to produce this very thoughtful report. Thank you, Barry. Well, thanks very much, Alan, and thank, thanks to everyone for, for being here. Um, I think Alan um, uh, put it very nicely, but uh, it's, it's my strong view that Europe is in, is in a real crisis, in, in many ways an unprecedented crisis. There are hot wars in the Middle East, and certainly the Middle East is in great crisis, and there are tensions in other regions, but Europe's really in a crisis, and I think what I'd love to do um, in today's discussion is um, take this report, which is about the alliance at risk, but more broadly European security issues, and try to sort of uh, advance some thinking and gain some insights on, on um, uh, how the United States and Europe working together, uh, and, and Canada too, how uh, the NATO allies can work with, with our European um, allies to try to uh, better deal with uh, the set of crises that are afflicting Europe in many ways, and there's not just the concerns about uh, Russian activities uh, and Putin's next move, as we all like to talk about, but also the um, unprecedented and ongoing migrant crisis that's affecting Europe, the um, fracturing in many ways of the European Union that it's causing, uh, questions that are related questions that are being raised, and then, of course, the concerns about terrorism and ISIS uh, and the whole sort of mix of all of that. I think we want to sort of focus the discussion a bit, but make sure we're, that we're not insensitive to these broader, to these broader questions in the in the context of the North North American and European link. Uh, and I think we should also be clear: we're 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 he, over here across the Atlantic Ocean. We certainly uh, are facing some of the same pressures, albeit perhaps not in as immediate a way. But but who knows? Let me briefly introduce our panelists. I want to do it really briefly. You have, um, I think, their bios, so I'm not going to address all of their many accomplishments, but I really want to talk to them uh, more today, so we'll, we'll be quite brief. Uh, Julianne Smith, a longtime colleague of mine, is currently Senior Fellow and Director of the Strategy and Statecraft Program at the Center for a New American Security. Um, she uh, also served as the Deputy National Security Advisor to Vice President Biden from April 2012 to June 2013, and had a range of other senior, senior posts um, uh, in the Pentagon as well. Um, 
His Excellency Andras Simonyi uh, is Managing Director of the Center for Transatlantic Relations at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. He had a very successful career in multilateral and bilateral diplomacy, um, uh, and it, as well in the private sector. Dr. George Benitez is the director of NATO Source and a senior fellow in the Brent Scowcroft Center, um, uh, and uh, covers a wide range of issues. And his his um, uh, Twitter account, uh, NATO Source, is a, a really a leading source for uh, almost any official and any uh, expert that deals with NATO and European security. It's really, if you just go through his uh, tens of thousands of followers, um, there's, it's a really, uh, really impressive, impressive bunch. I think what we'll do, um, this is an expert audience, this is an expert panel. I think we'll jump right into some initial thoughts from each of the panelists. We'll make this conversational. I'll make sure we get to uh, questions and discussions between, uh, between you and, and these esteemed panelists. And so I think without further ado, I'll, I'd love to turn and we'll go in order to, um, to Julie Smith. Before Julie speaks, uh, uh, and uh, Alan mentioned there is a report that we're releasing that's um, attended to this gathering. It's called Alliance at Risk. It features um, about a half dozen authors um, from a variety of countries talking about and analyzing their uh, country's um, defense efforts. It includes a lot of people, uh, Yap de Hoop-Skeffer, former NATO Secretary General with the Forward, Francois Heisborg, a uh, renowned expert from France, uh, the current uh, Polish um, is a Deputy Defense Minister, uh, but was before he was Deputy Defense Minister, <laughs> um, a top-notch Norwegian expert, and I could go on, a, a former Deputy Sack Yor. So this is a really, we thought it would be a really important to not have a view from Washington on, hey, you, hey, you Europeans, get your act together, but uh, uh, some really uh, cogent and strategic analyses from top European experts themselves that we then compiled uh, that, that forms the basis for this discussion today. So now I can turn to Julie for her thoughts. Great. Well, thank you, Barry, and thanks to the Atlantic Council uh, for inviting me here this morning, and congratulations to George and everybody else who's put out this and put so much time into this report, which is really exceptional. Uh, I think what we see when it comes to European defense capabilities and spending is often a, a broad statement about Europe. Uh, but we don't always get into the nitty-gritty details and have a country-by-country -country analysis. And this report provides a really useful uh, overview because it not only looks at the big three in Europe, look the views from Paris, Berlin, and London, but it also includes an in-depth analysis looking at Norway in particular, Italy, and Poland. So it gives kind of a broad interview, uh, overview from different corners of Europe, and that's a really important aspect of this report. It's depressing if you read it uh, because it it identifies a number of gaps in each of those countries, uh, and uh, it offers uh, some very useful recommendations on going forward, particularly in the lead up to the Warsaw Summit, but not just the Warsaw Summit. It really looks at ideas in the medium and long term as well and offers some just exceptional uh, recommendations. Uh, the problem, of course, uh, with all these great recommendations and some of the gaps that the report highlights is that, as Barry noted, Europe definitely finds itself in a crisis. Um, the EU in particular, because of the migration crisis and the challenges that it has posed to leadership in Brussels, but also not just the migration crisis with Brexit hanging out uh, there as a real possibility, if you look at the polling numbers, um, all sorts of other challenges, resurgent 
Russia, the challenges from NATO South, um, the rise of uh, an array of nationalist and far-right uh, parties. Uh, it, you know, the list goes on and on. Fairly weak economies uh, across the board, not in all cases, but a number of economies that are flailing. And so when you package this all together, no single challenge could really bring about the demise of Europe or the EU or NATO. But when you package all of these challenges that Europe is grappling with, you find kind of the perfect storm. And that's why I hope many of these recommendations will take root. But I have to say, having tracked European defense and security issues now for the better part of the last 20 years, and even looking back before then at debates we've had, I have a certain amount of skepticism and worry uh, at this point. Um, and I'm concerned that maybe Warsaw won't deliver in ways that we anticipate. Um, but I, again, I, I think the, the recommendations and the ideas are 100% sound. And they're practical. They're not you know, pie in the sky, you know, let's try and dream as if, you know, everybody was spending 5% of GDP on defense. They're very practical. So uh, I hope uh, that these recommendations will take root. But again, I have some concerns about that. We can talk about that later. Second point, quickly, what I like about the report is it highlights the difference in public opinion in a number of countries. And it takes two examples of France and Germany, how the French can, you know, I think they use the phrase in the report, rally around the flag, uh, and how it is somewhat easier for policymakers in Paris to make the case about investments in defense than it is, say, in a country like Germany, where there are different challenges. Uh, and so the report picks up on some of these cultural nuances and differences. And that's important when you're looking at European security and defense issues. Uh, third point I would make, and then I'll turn it over to my colleagues. We often talked years ago about a two-tiered alliance in terms of capabilities. And I think that's still very much a challenge that we will face in the future. But increasingly, I'm thinking about a two-tiered alliance in terms of how we look at threats. And here, the report really highlights important differences in those countries that are much more focused on a resurgent Russia and those that literally have migrants coming up onto their shores, uh, and the differences in approach. And there's an interesting section in the report on <coughs> Poland, in particular, where the Poles note their willingness to address the threats stemming from NATO South, but that their hope is that there would be some return for them than in looking to NATO's east. And that there's kind of this transactional moment inside the NATO alliance where some countries are asking others to deliver on their interests in exchange for something that they view to be a top two or top three priority. So uh, again, I thought the report captured a lot of these debates very well. They have some excellent quotes. Uh, and in, obviously, you've interviewed loads of officials across the European continent. And it really gives you a good flavor of what what we're up against and what the mood music is inside Europe. And for that reason, you know, again, congratulations to Atlantic Council. And I hope all of you will take a copy with you today and give it a good look. <laughs> Thanks very much, Julie. Uh, Ambassador Simonyi. Thank you. I told my wife after this meeting I might not come home, I might go into hiding. <laughs> Let me say that uh, I don't want to be cynical, but for a time I have been contemplating writing a piece. And, People talk me out of it. And the title would be, Shut Down of Think Tanks, Nobody's Listening. <clears throat> and I say this, I don't say this lightly. I don't say this uh, uh, cynically. I just say that uh, some of the warnings that are in the, in the book and the report, well, we've been talking about that for forever. But I still think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a very, it, it, it is a very important uh, 
uh, moment in the debate. I think that the report is great. I think uh, I, I, I'm glad uh, some of the international media, including the Financial Times, uh, picked it up. Uh, that's very important. I've made some comments. I want to be. I want to. Uh, you know, I don't want to mince my word. I want to be very precise on, in what I uh, what I say, and then I hope to have a good conversation. But thank you, Julie, for for the, the great comments. I mean, you're an honorary uh, you're an honorary European now. Um, so, you know, the the issue really is political, and my problem is that the 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 idea that an integrated Europe uh, uh, will not just be strong, but by the virtue of its economic and cultural influence, uh, by soft power, if you will, uh, it will be protected. Uh, and, and I think that was always wrong. Um, and that the idea that the US will take care of Europe no matter what, is, I think, has made Europeans complacent. And, and I'd also like to add that in ret retro retrospect, some, some brother, brotherly tough love would, would have been great. And you know, the idea that America is Mars and, and Europe is, is Venus, uh, and that they both orbit beautifully is, I think, dead wrong. Uh, I think Europe, Europe, we Europeans are still suffering from the after effect of getting drunk on the peace dividends of the 1990s. And despite a big fat Russia, migrants overrunning Europe, terrorists everywhere, uh, I think NATO still struggles to meet uh, defense uh, commitments it undertook in, in 2014. So, you know, I have kind of lost, uh, lost count of, on how many times uh, it has made promises. And, um, and, 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 and many in the alliance are, uh, many militaries in the alliance are in terribly bad uh, shape. Now, NATO's approach to military planning has always been based on predictability. predictability. And planning was based on identifying missions and tasks that military planners believed would be necessary to prepare for discrete sets of military security threats uh, to deter, prevent, or respond uh, to if, if necessary. Now, the difficulty now is that predictability, an often safe and not particularly time-sensitive approach to military planning and operations, has mostly gone away. And indeed, the only predictable elements these days is the threats that threats can and will occur on, a multiple, uh, on multiple fronts simultaneously. Now, NATO members neither view these threats in the same way as Julie alluded to, nor see them as having the same level of importance uh, to their countries. And that goes to the heart of the problem, I think. The three musketeers approach of all for one and one for all that was incredibly important and described in, in NATO's roots has been fraying on the edges for years, and now giant rips, uh, there are giant rips in the, in the fabric. What is sadly missing is that, uh, uh, that, that belief and the commitment that a threat, for example, to Lithuania is the same as a threat to Portugal. Um, I, I think we will certainly have a conversation about Russia, so I'm not going to go into that. I have five paragraphs on that. Now, I'll skip that, because I know the questions are coming. Uh, and I'd, I'd say NATO is increasingly divided in its approach to threats from Russia, determined by the neighborhood in which one resides. The, and, and here, uh, let me use some tough language. The very real cordon sanitaire that NATO's newer members provide to Western Europe has led to a level of comfort because Russia's actions are no longer in their West European backyard. And here's something I heard the other day which broke my heart. 
for the very first time, I have heard the expression, the Easties. Wow. Uh, I didn't see that coming. And that, for me, is the toughest sign yet that there is a kind of a, a divide in, 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 in Europe between East and West that there is not supposed to be. And finally, let me say that you know, I'm not a military expert. There, I can see there are a couple of military experts here. And uh, Jorge definitely is one of the top, top experts. So I don't want to go into the numbers, uh, numbers war. Um, <clears throat> but I do know something about how Russia uses fear and bluster to prevent NATO from taking the actions it must uh, uh, to, be in, to be taken seriously by Russia. Putting forces where they are not needed instead of deploying them where they are on a permanent basis, allowing Putin to preempt our taking sound military and political decisions because of what he might do is no way to run the alliance. And finally, a message to my European brothers. I can see half the room is Europeans. The other half, I don't know. Um, it is counterintuitive. The more the Europeans themselves are ready to do for their security and defense, the more inclined the next president and the next Congress will be to reinforce its commitments uh, to and presence in Europe. And I think that should not be taken lightly. I'll stop here. Great. Thank you very much, Andras. Um, George, why don't you add your thoughts to this? Thank you, Barry. And thank discussion. you, Julie and Ambassador Simone, for those comments. Um, I'll sort of try to give a brief uh, summary of some of the key themes uh, that came across from the six national case studies that were examined in the report. Um, I think some of the three main ones are the uh, awareness of the danger of a new security environment and threats, uh, reduced capabilities among NATO members, and also reduced readiness among NATO members. Um, we have several authors point out issues about the, the new dangers, the new security environment and threats that the Alliance and its members are facing now that are very different from what the expectations were after the end of the Cold War. Um, in particular, Francois Heisberg, um, he argues that due to Russia's uh, return as a dynamic uh, revanchist power and due to the uh, can the possibility of a 30-year war in the Middle East and the U.S. rebalancing to Asia, as well as the continuing disarray in the EU, in this context that the current uh, French defense spending is just not keeping up with these trends. Uh, likewise, uh, Rolf Tamnes from Oslo comments about how Norway's uh, growing vulnerability to the uh, Russia's acquisition of long-range precision-guided weapons, as well as their development of uh, cyber offensive cyber uh, capabilities. And we also have uh, Tomas uh, Sakowski from Warsaw warning us about Russia's uh, concentrated efforts to uh, weaken the transatlantic link and also to damage political cohesion within Europe. Uh, in terms of reduced capabilities, uh, the British chapter by former Deputy Supreme Commander of NATO, uh, British General Richard Sheriff, uh, does an excellent job of, on the one hand, arguing that right now the British military uh, will be very challenged uh, to deploy uh, a credible combat-ready brigade, let alone a division. Um, and then he backs this up by the example of what the British did in November of 2014 in Exercise Black Eagle, where the British uh, deployed about 1,000 soldiers and about 100 armored vehicles to Poland, 
this was not a, a brigade-sized force. It was not a division-sized force. It was described as a battle group. Um, and to do this, they were very challenged to scrape enough uh, resources, personnel, and vehicles to do that, so much so that they even had to consider for a while bringing in tanks all the way from their training facilities in Western Canada. Um, so again, if they had to go through that force, that much difficulty after months of planning uh, to put together a smaller than brigade-sized force to go to Poland, um, it really questions the, uh, some of the weaknesses uh, all across the alliance. Um, and lastly, dealing with the concept of the reduced readiness. Um, all across the, the alliance members and in several of the case studies, we have excellent examples of even the fewer capabilities that the NATO members have now, uh, far too many of them are not uh, operations ready. Um, we have the uh, Patrick Keller from Berlin looking at the case study of uh, the Germans and how um, According to the Bundeswehr itself, the majority of German combat systems cannot be used immediately for missions, exercises, or even training. Um, and these are the circumstances that produce the infamous uh, training exercises of German units preparing for doing NATO response force exercises, actually training with broomsticks. Um, and he says that uh, Germany's shortages and readiness problems have become apparent with increasing frequency. Um, the authors, fortunately, did not just leave it at identifying the problems, but they came up with some very specific recommendations. In each of the chapters, you'll feel you'll find some very important recommendations to move forward so that there's progress. So they are not just cursing the darkness, but actually trying to light candles to light the way. Um, so I'll just focus on a couple other recommendations from the authors. Um, General Sheriff points out that um, he makes a strong recommendation that there should be a permanent NATO presence in the Baltic uh, allies. Um, and he also says that the UK itself should play a leading role in this and should provide NATO with a core size headquarters and a division of at least three brigades that are operational level. Um, at the same time, we have a very intriguing and I think uh, prophetic uh, recommendation from our French author, Francois Heisberg. He foresaw that France has a willingness to spend more on defense, but is restricted by defense spend deficit spending limits from the EU Commission. Um, Francois recommended that the EU should show more flexibility on this point so that France and others could increase their defense spending. And then we then saw this play out exactly right after the Paris attacks, with France asking for and obtaining a waiver from the EU for greater defense spending. Now, however, the friction is that the waiver is only good for 2016, and Paris wants it to last longer, and some other countries, such as Italy and Greece, are requesting waivers of their own to deal with the migrant crisis. Um, I agree with some of the sentiments that have been shared so far. I think there is a new security threat environment that for Europe, and I think too many of NATO's political leaders are having difficulty adjust to it. They are still clinging to the peace dividend that Andras mentioned, um, and that time has passed. We are now living in a new age, and at a time after we've seen Russian aggression in Georgia, in Crimea, and in Donbass, and now also in Syria, I think we have to realistically challenge NATO leaders and ask how many European countries does Russia have to invade before NATO members wake up and start having proportional defense spending? Thank you. Great. Well, so uh, a lot of good fodder. Um, I think what I'll do is walk through a series of um, questions. I have about four of them in my head, uh, and then we'll turn to you. So. Um, if you have thoughts or questions you want to add to the discussion, just uh, raise your hand and I'll 
try to get to all of you before, the, um, before our allotted time is up. So first I wanted to talk about the transatlantic link, and then I wanted to talk about the divisions within Europe, and then a little bit about Russia, and then a little bit about the South. So that's kind of the way I'm going to walk, walk us through this. I, I really liked um, uh, Julie's description of the potential for a, um, a two-tiered alliance. Um, uh, and, and also Andreas's um, discussion of a Europe that's complacent uh, because they know the US will come to their rescue uh, over time. And this is a dilemma for US policymakers. So let's do the US-Europe thing first. Um, you know, we, we know we have direct interests in, in um, helping Europe, our European allies, to deal with the potential threat from Russia. Uh, but there is this dynamic, the more we do, we think the more, the less they might do. Um, this was opined on rather, rather uh, clearly by Secretary of Defense Gates before he, he left. Uh, I, I think this was my like, second week in the job here at the Atlanta <laughs> Council, and I was just you know, learning where my office was and this thing, and then and NATO wasn't quite in the headlines at that point, and then Secretary of, Ga Secretary of Defense Gates gave this really uh, stark speech uh, that sounds like Julie, Julie wrote from her Snickers next to me, um, that really was a wake-up call to Europe and, and warned of a significant uh, distancing between the United States and Europe if, it, if Europe doesn't get its act together. It didn't work. Um, at least that's my hypothesis. I'm not sure what will work, and I don't want to have a panel that repeats panels uh, in, in, this, you know, in, in this space and think tanks from the 70s and 80s that wrings our hands about the future of NATO but doesn't sort of move the ball. But so are there, what, what, are, what are the panel's thoughts on this North American, European gap in, um, in the need for uh, robust defense spending and capabilities? I'm not a huge fan of the 2% uh, metric. It's okay, it certainly has gotten a lot of smash. I'd much rather focus on outputs and outcomes and real capabilities that can be delivered on certain timelines across certain scenarios, but maybe it's better than, than nothing. But I'd love to throw this open to the panel and say, how do we help bridge this transatlantic uh, gap that still seems to be with us despite a range of threats? Well, <clears throat> I, I, I've told this story before. I'm sorry if folks have heard it, but it bears repeating. I uh, was able to actually work for Secretary Gates and Secretary Panetta at the Pentagon, and they both had different approaches on defense spending, of course, as Barry noted. Secretary Gates uh, left office with this rather uh, aggressive message uh, to Europe and a little bit threatening message to Europe about the dangers of not making proper investments. And we were blasted afterwards in our office for taking the wrong approach, that we shouldn't publicly shame our European allies into spending more. And we got a lot of grief for it. Um, and then Panetta came into office and decided to take a different twist and uh, decided he wouldn't make any public speeches and he wanted to consult with allies behind closed doors in private settings and kind of give them a, a, a firm nudge, but always privately. And that, too, uh, didn't create uh, much of a change. Um, and we were uh, told by our European colleagues that this was an ineffective approach because it wasn't allowing defense ministers to go to the finance ministers to say, you see, Washington's beating up on us. But they would say, in that case, under <coughs> Panetta, we're not hearing any complaints. Seems like there's not an issue. Um, and it's like, no, 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 you know, Secretary Panetta just told us X, Y, and Z. But it, 
unless you're making the case publicly. Some Europeans were arguing we need to have a more vocal uh, statement from the United States urging us to spend more on defense. So the lesson here for me in my tenure at DOD was that, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, uh, because we were trying all sorts of approaches. Um, we've had moments where we've pushed uh, in the early 2000s pooling and sharing. We've looked at niche capabilities. We've looked at specialization. We, I mean, really, collectively, as partners, we've looked at this uh, backwards and forwards, and as Barry noted, really since the 70s and 80s, um, without any real dramatic shifts. I mean, post-Wales, we've seen some increase in defense spending and some really positive developments in a handful of countries. But it's not enough. Uh, it's not lasting. It's not permanent. Uh, and it isn't creating the change, I think, that we really need. So the question for the United States is this. Are you, the United States, prepared to move out and continue to provide for European security because you understand the consequences of failing to do that? Or are you going to continue to twist and turn and put forward some uh, capabilities and resources, but not as much as perhaps you could because you want to spur change on the other side and hold out that possibility um, in the future? And I think at this point, given the crisis that Europe, the crises that Europeans are facing on all fronts, and what Russians tactics, what Russia's tactics are, and its strategy to try and divide us and divide Europe from within, I think Washington really has to make the call at this point that regardless of what happens in European defense budgets, we'll keep pushing. We're going to accept the reality that we're probably not going to see dramatic shifts in the short term in the face of these crises. But we're going to do it because it's in our national interest to see the transatlantic relationship prevail. And this is a bitter pill. But it's one that I think the transatlantic relationship, will, I, that Washington in particular, needs to swallow. Well, <clears throat> I, I'm not so sure. Uh, I'm not so sure the transatlantic relationship uh, is really as strong as we say it is. Uh, I'd also like to say that uh, you know um, Europe should have the European leaders should have uh, done the right things while they could because this refugee crisis is just going to suck so much money out of the systems that I doubt if the Europeans are ready to <laughs> make the, the, the sacrifice they didn't do. In spite of the fact uh, that they understand, yes, there is a resurgent and aggressive Russia. There is a Russia that is teasing the Nordics, is potentially attacking the Baltics, uh, which is creating a mess uh, in Central Europe. And in the South, uh, trust me, they have a hand in the refugee crisis. So, you know, all <coughs> this does not seem to uh, seem to uh, push the discourse in discourse in, 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 in Europe in the right direction. So that is why we're, let me circle back to what Julie said. I think the dilemma is over. I think the United States just needs to be blunt and clear. I, I, I seriously believe that. Friends do that. And uh, I wouldn't shy away from that. Now, there's something that the United States did not explain to the Europeans properly. Don't spend because we tell you so. It's because your security is at stake. Don't do it because Gates goes out there and is angry at you. Most Europeans start spending and start cooking the books because the Americans are angry. Don't do that. That's not the reason why you should be spending. And I want to come back to what I said earlier, that the Europeans have to explain that there is a, America's changing. 
American demographics are changing. American society is changing. Look at the debates. I mean, I, I, I complained uh, this morning that, you know, you should stop the election campaign because I can't get enough sleep. <laughs> but I'm serious. I mean, look, Europe is not, not even, has not been mentioned once. Europe is not in the on the map. This should be a warning to Europeans to understand that, you know, as I said, the more you take care of yourself, the more the American uh, leadership will be helping out. And, and, and I, I, would, I would just, uh, 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 you know, also uh, uh, dovetail to what, what Julie said. I, I'm not in particular happy with this 2%. I've never been very happy with the 2%. Um, and and, and, and I, I really, really don't think uh, uh, this helps us at all. Uh, because at the end of the day, if we don't have the political uh, will uh, to uh, use what we have and have the political will to spend uh, on the right things and, and do it together, and if we don't have a clarity about, uh, uh, about the threat perception for Europe uh, and, and the unity of, of thought, then this 2% does not mean anything. As I'm seeing George, I'm also reminded that on Twitter we're tweeting this from the hashtag FutureNATO. So if you want to join the online conversation, go to that. George? Thank you, Barry. I'm not as willing as Julie is to swallow this bitter pill. Uh, <laughs> I, I, and I think um, there are some very good reasons for that. And I, I think one of the leading ones is that America's political leadership has to understand that swallowing this bitter pill for the Americans to continue to bear uh, a disproportionate amount of Europe's uh, security and defense uh, burden is just not sustainable. Um, it's just not my aversion to the bitter pill, but it's Congress's aversion to the bitter pill. And they may get American presidents that are willing to spend more and to send more forces to Europe, but they're certainly not going to get American Congresses that are willing to provide the funds uh, to pay for European security. And thus, I agree strongly with uh, Andras' message that the motivation for Europe has to come from Europe. But I think part of it has to be that the Americans have to send that message to Europe. We care about European security, but the US is not going to care more about your security than you do yourself. So we will match things and match your efforts, but you have to show us that you're putting that effort. And a perfect example of this is what I feel is one of the key weaknesses of the Obama administration's European Reassurance Initiative, the ERI. Um, although I'm a, I support the ERI and for the United States to put more, uh, invest more of its resources in European defense, I think the gross problem with it was it was declared, developed, and announced unilaterally. Um, I thought this was a mistake in the first ERI last year, and I think this is a mistake that has been repeated for the second ERI. Um, it should not be that the US is putting more resources on the table and then begging and pleading the Europeans to match us because let's face it, it did not work last year with the ERI. We put over $700 million worth of resources into Europe and the Europeans didn't match that. So before we announced the second ERI, the United States should have negotiated and talked with our European allies to say, we are willing to spend three times as much for your security. What are you willing to also put on the table to match this? Perhaps it won't be the equivalent match, but together we should have seen a much more sincere and tangible effort from the Europeans than we did from the first ERI. I think overall, I, I agree that we need to have 
tough love with the Europeans, but I think we need to send a consistent message. And unfortunately, we have been sending mixed messages to the European allies, because on the one hand, we criticize them for not spending enough on defense spending or capabilities, but then we continually to make these unilateral efforts of, oh, but that's all right. We'll continue to provide resources for you no matter what you do. And I think we should be negotiating a multinational, multilateral agreement on these things moving forward, rather than continue to have unilateral actions by the US and then just complaining about what the European response. I think it's a very good point, George. Um, let, let me move to Europe, and Julie called this a transactional moment, which I really, I really think is a good soundbite, uh, but also has uh, quite a bit of truth. You know, there's a concern about a two-tiered alliance in terms of the threat focus to the extent that there is one. Uh, a lot of countries in the East focused on Russian um, challenge, security challenges. A lot of countries in the South completely enveloped with uh, southern threats and the ongoing um, refugee crisis. But I want to make this a really deeper conversation. That's the headlines, but let's talk about values. I mean, values have always been, it sounds like a nice word and it's a political soundbite, but it, it, I, I think it's that there's actually something to this. Values have sort of been at the core of the NATO alliance since its founding, and uh, NATO enlarged on the assumption and on some demonstration that, w that the new members shared the values of the, of the uh, members that were already in the alliance. But I think this refugee crisis, and this is my personal opinion, has perhaps unearthed a pretty significant values gap where you have officials like the Slovakian prime minister say, I understand the refugee crisis, but I'm, we're only gonna take Christians into uh, our country. And, and then a very big differential between uh, some countries in terms of their welcoming and their tolerance of refugees, which they actually need for their economy to survive over the long term, but we'll put that aside, uh, and those that are not uh, as welcoming and not as tolerant. And I think the German leadership was very surprised by this differentiation. I think they expected a lot more of their colleagues to go along with them, and obviously they're, they're in a bit of a strait right now. But I'd love to talk about, this is a transactional moment regarding the upcoming Warsaw Summit and how do we work through the military capabilities and resources that, that get allocated to the East versus the South. But this is also a values moment. And it might be a time to sort of reinvigorate this discussion. What does it mean to be in NATO? Do we share the core values? Is this a time to have a different discussion of what we call sometimes now illiberal democracies in places such as the birthplace of our ambassador here? So, this is the discussion to have, I think, not just the headlines, but are we like-minded enough to keep this thing together? Uh, it might be too late, but I think, I, I really think we still should have this discussion. Um, I don't like what's happening in my country, and I definitely don't like what's happening in Poland. And frankly, this weakens uh, European cohesion. Uh, and it plays right into the hands of the Russians. So if you want, I put the military threat by Russia in our own silliness, allowing the backsliding of democracies together. That's a pretty, pretty bad uh, uh, mixture. And so I would, I would say that I don't, this is a moment when we need to get back to the, the values debate. Uh, I'm going to, you know, I've been saying this for a long time, maybe NATO should have had a, an exclusion clause. When we were 
we were brought into NATO saying that you, if you don't hold up the values that NATO stands for, that you might just be considered uh, to be excluded from NATO, that would be a pretty strong incentive to maintain the values uh, that, uh, that we all stand for. So I, I do believe that what you just raised uh, cuts to the core of the debate. Uh, also, I just wonder, uh, when is the time going to come when, uh, when members of Congress will start asking questions, why are we exactly defending these countries? I mean, are they really helping to support uh, the values that we stand for? So it's a very dangerous uh, uh, road uh, some, of the, some of the Europeans have embarked upon. But I, I wouldn't blame the United States for this. I would say that the Europeans themselves have not understood how vulnerable the democratic transition process in Eastern Europe was and still is. I don't think anybody really understood how, uh, how what, what the dangers uh, are and were of backsliding. And you know, when some of us started warning that uh, what happened in my country could be contagious, uh, nobody wanted to listen. But I, I'd repeat, I think it's important we have this debate. And I hope as we prepare for the Warsaw Summit, this whole, uh, whole thing will not be brushed aside just because we have an urgency of, uh, of, of dealing with the Russian crisis. I think the two should go hand in hand. And, and I should be clear, the US obviously, in light of our election <coughs> debates, is not blameless in this category. I think we all know the, the crux of that debate and it's, uh, it does not bode well for the question of shared transatlantic values. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, the ambassador makes a number of good points. I mean, there's a values piece, but there's also, um, there's been a tremendous loss of faith in institutions. Uh, and we're seeing that now play out with political parties across the European continent. But frankly, we see debates here in the United States about whether or not an institution like the European Union or NATO can address our grievances and meet our needs. And a lot of the response that's coming back from publics in Europe and the United States is, no, we have lost faith in these organizations. They're not responsive. They're, they're responsive, that they're not able to help us with a series of grievances. There's huge <laughs> disaffection with globalization. And whether it's security, political, economic, trade, whatever it is, there's this sense that somehow Brussels writ large isn't providing for us. And so that's one thing. The other message is, a, a total uh, unraveling of just solidarity. There, there is no longer the level of solidarity that uh, we once saw. With the migration crisis now, we saw an instance where Germany said, look, we've taken a lot of migrants and we're gonna need <clears throat> other countries to step up. We know it's hard, but there has to be some sharing of the burden. And that was met with crickets. I mean, nothing came back, nothing changed in essence. And because of that, I think it's now raised real questions about what type of expectations should you have about solidarity in an institution like NATO or the European Union. And so it's raising all sorts of fundamental questions and assumptions we've made for the better part of 60 or 70 years. Um, and I think this will be the fundamental challenge going forward is persuading skeptical publics that, for example, articles NATO, uh, uh, NATO's Article 5 commitment is real. <coughs> 
and that the European Union actually can respond to a whole host of grievances that you may or may not have against that institution. But it's an uphill battle, and that's why we've seen some of these political shifts inside a number of countries across Europe. I think this is an excellent question, um, but I will remind the audience that while NATO is the most powerful military alliance in the world, it is also the strongest and closest community of democracies in the world. Um, from its very inception, uh, the, the values of NATO have been the key fact, and, and that is why NATO was created to defend these values. It is the reason why uh, some NATO members have not gone to war against each other because of the shared values within the alliance. It's the reason why so many uh, current NATO members in their application process to become NATO members had to raise their values and improve from their own past to meet the kind of democratic values that NATO has. And it's the reason why current NATO partners from as far away as Australia and Japan cooperate and invest in NATO because they see the value of these shared values. Um, but in addition to that, I think the alliance as I agree with the recommendations. The alliance needs to be more, needs to do more, and the leaders of the alliance need to do more. But at the same time, the relationship of the alliance and the significance of these values has played not as great an effect as we would like, but it has played a significant effect in that um, a lot of these countries have certain limits into the, some of the things that they act and the way they do and some of their own domestic policies because they have positive peer pressure from the other dem democracies within NATO. That they know that they go to certain extents, they're gonna have a, a criticism from their peers. And I think the fact that they have very valuable security relationships with other NATO capitals lends great importance to the voice of these other NATO capitals when they choose to exercise it and to say, hey, we're not comfortable with some of the domestic policies that you're taking. So I think the alliance is already contributing, but I very much agree that there's far more that alliance leaders could be doing to have a positive effect on this value question. Can I just add that the, this whole illiberal thing <coughs> uh, would be much weaker without, without Russia, without a resurgent Russia. The illiberal thought is really a Russian mm -hmm. thought. And so I just wanted, you know, it, it, it's funny because you can be anti-Russian and you can embrace Russian illiberalism at the same time. That's a very funny thing, but think about it. Yeah, and I think you made the good point that Russia is literally uh, putting resources into exploiting these divisions, including a recent case of a, of a, of a, a refugee, of a, of a German citizen that was supposedly attacked that turned out to be a fabrication that the Russian services were um, uh, trying to uh, manufacture. Uh, so we should not be sort of Pollyannish about uh, Russian intelligence and information and security services really using these crises as a way to fracture Europe, putting money into um, campaigns uh, that uh, would, it, it would accelerate the centrifugal forces that are sort of uh, really putting pressure on Europe and, and on the European Common Project. I mean, let's move to Russia now. Uh, there's a near-term piece and a longer-term piece. I think the near-term piece, uh, in my personal opinion, you can call me an immoderate moderator, uh, but uh, <laughs> it's pretty clear that Russia doesn't think the U.S. has the will to back up its, its commitments in a big way, even though we have uh, uh, the capability, and I think the same can be said of Europe. So I think the next 10 and a half months are really dangerous months because I think the Russian leadership knows that it's probably likely that whoever the next president is is going to have a little more will, uh, a little more of a robust engagement approach than the current administration. And so I would love to hear the panelists' views on 
what might we see play out over the next 10 and a half months until the next president is inaugurated? Um, what might we see coming out of the NATO uh, Warsaw Summit uh, in July that might uh, help to play a role in deterring or dissuading uh, additional Russian measures? And sort of how do you see the Russian angle on this playing out over the next uh, year or so? And what does the report say in a practical way that we might be doing about it? Uh, so, well, if there's one thing we've learned about Russia in the last couple of years, it's our inability to predict where they're going next. Um, I, I don't think anybody anticipated them taking a bite out of Ukraine, and uh, certainly I didn't expect them to show up in Syria. Uh, so who knows what's next on the list? Um, so what we need to do is obviously continue with the reassurance measures that were put forward in Wales. And I think Warsaw will provide some additional deterrence measures. I think we have to focus on resilience uh, as well. And there have been a number of recommendations made by think tanks around town uh, on that front. I think the resolve uh, issue is all right at the moment. I think on the sanctions front, we'll probably, I'm guessing, we'll see um, a renewal of the sanctions this summer with some pretty fierce debates. I mean, obviously, some countries are really feeling the pain and are interested in at least a partial lifting of sanctions for partial implementation of Minsk. Fortunately, Russia's behavior in Syria, I think, has tempered some of those debates and divides inside uh, the transatlantic uh, relationship and, and alliance. Um, but going forward, it's, it's really a guessing game. And it's ensuring that we stand united. We don't let Russia divide us. We focus on deterrence. Uh, and that we do what we can uh, to create a better outcome in Syria. I mean, obviously, on the Syria front, uh, it, it's, it's hard to imagine a breakthrough. I mean, we've already seen, in light of the ceasefire, what Russia has done, uh, continued strikes, not just against ISIS, but against civilians. Uh, I think the refugee crisis is going to get a lot worse this spring, which is going to create a lot of friction between Europe and Russia. We're now seeing the term. You saw this at the Munich Security Conference. Russia's interest in the weaponization of refugees, uh, which is interesting, and their interest in putting pressure on Aleppo to send another 500,000 refugees into Turkey. Uh, so that's not going to make the sanctions debate l more likely to go easy on Russia, I think it'll go in the other direction. So I mean, ultimately, there are initiatives. I'm, I'm not in the camp to say the West has completely let down its guard. I think there have been important initiatives put forward. I think we could do more, uh, certainly. But look, ultimately, this hinges on Russia. And it hinges on Moscow's behavior uh, and Putin's intentions. And again, if there's one thing we've learned, it's the, the difficulty in predicting exactly what his next play is going to be. I think one of the common themes within the report is that the NATO's political leadership um, in, some, in the six NATO capitals examined here um, have to really address that Russia is not a short-term problem. It's a long-term strategic problem and that we can't solve it with short-term strategic uh, measures. Uh, I think there's a great deal of skepticism about some of the steps that have been taken by NATO so far. Uh, while everyone agrees that the RAP, the VJTF, uh, the tripling of the NRF, and things like that, and some of the recent decisions that just came out of the last NATO defense minister's meeting for the creation of a multinational force in the east that will most probably be about a brigade-sized force, these are good 
and positive steps, but they're still too little um, and they are too not sufficient uh, for the kind of threat that we're dealing with. I think the way I would describe it is NATO leaders are clinging to minimal deterrence rather than a proportional response to the threats that we're facing. Um, and I th they're still clinging to what uh, Andres said, which is this peace dividend to this relationship with Russia in the 90s that no longer exists and will not exist for quite some time. And the best way to change the relationship with Russia, to change their, cal their calculations, is to raise the cost for their negative behavior in the environments that we're facing. Um, and that requires a stronger deterrence. Uh, for example, uh, General Sheriff in the British chapter, he talks about very, uh, clearly about the VJTF, and he says that unless the new VJTF is a standing force trained and ready with permanent allocated units and a fixed command structure, it will be useless. Um, and then I'll call attention to the fact that even with the VJTF and even with this new multinational force in the East, um, at a, adding a brigade-sized NATO force in the East uh, might seem like a big deal, but we have to look at it compared to what the Russians are doing. Uh, it took NATO over a year of hand-wringing uh, to come up with this multinational force for a brigade. In the meantime, the Russians have announced that they are adding three divisions to the Western Military District, uh, which is facing NATO's borders. So I don't think NATO's steps are really proportional to the kind of measures that we're seeing from Russia at this time. Great, thanks, George. One more question, then we'll turn to the audience. The question's about the South. I, I, I'm I, sorry, yeah, please. I, I really want to comment. I've been waiting to go, oh, 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 <laughs> okay. oh no, this, the Russia thing is please, coming uh, on. <laughs> I've got to say something. Unleash. Okay, uh, I just want to say, well, well you know, um, first of all, the Europeans are, are a little confused about American policy towards Russia. So let me be blunt and clear about this. I mean, you know, uh, is it a partner? Is it an enemy? Is it a disturbing element? Is it, what, what is Russia? And then, I mean, Europeans are really confused. <clears throat> this is the first thing. The second thing is, yeah, but the Russians are already dividing us. They divided us. Uh, you know, I deal a lot in energy issues. I don't see energy as, as, an, as, as an economic proposition. I think it's a security proposition. And I just wonder, you know, Nord Stream 2, that's a security proposition. It's a, it's a mean by, it's, it's, it's a tool by the Russians to divide Europe. And I just wonder why Germany and others, why don't get it. I'd also like to say that uh, Eric Bradberg, I don't know if Eric is here, but Eric Bradberg and I wrote a piece uh, a while ago, six months ago. And we suggested that we, we feel that the Russians might have a hand in the refugee crisis the way it was ignited. Does anyone in this room, except for those who, I'm not going to comment, uh, who have any doubt that the Russians actually did have a hand and do have a hand in pushing the refugee crisis because it weakens Europe and it weakens. So what I'm trying to get at, we at NATO never had the conversation about the non-military aspects of, of our, our security, never, never really had a serious dis debate about this. And I think uh, it's important as we discuss the pro proposals that are very good proposals that are in the book, uh, we also seriously need a conversation about, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, uh, the non-military aspects of, uh, of, of power. How are they being used to disturb, disrupt, divide uh, Europe and America and, you, and, and Europe internally? 
That's a really, really important point, I think, that, that uh, I know for the most part in this town, we still refer to the dime elements of power, diplomatic, information, military, and economic. When those were sort of 15 years ago, the only sets of tools, and now we have a vast array of other ones, cyber, energy, and others that are really underappreciated and underintegrated into our national and international toolboxes. So I want to throw this open to the audience. Uh, raise your hand if you have any thoughts, questions, suggestions, and we'll, we've, we'll, we'll begin a broader conversation. And please identify yourself as well. Uh, Jeff Stacy from Geoplicity USA. Just a question. First of all, the report was really good. Uh, the, the comments, I think we would all agree, are even better. And Andras, you referred to uh, nobody listening to think tanks anymore. Would you agree that they're probably listening to a, a political campaign? And um, whatever presumptive President Trump is saying or tweeting. But um, if you think about um, the ERI and Jorge, I liked how you put uh, or made the distinction between ERI 1 and ERI 2 and compared the responses. If you were Senator Rubio or Secretary Clinton and you're on the campaign, would it not, asking the panel, make sense to come out with some big, bold strategic move, permanent placement of a much larger force, et cetera, et cetera, and be taken very seriously on the campaign trail? But as you're suggesting, wouldn't it be a mistake in policy terms to actually do that? Would it not um, make a little more sense to dangle in negotiation terms permanent placement and multiple brigades and synchronize a negotiated response to that? Moving forward with some of the ideas in the report, some of the suggestions of the, of the writers, so that the next administration already comes into uh, power with a little more of a joint response to this. Something about dangling and negotiating rather than unilaterally proposing. I actually think it's possible for the, for the candidates to do both. I think they could very clearly make positions to say that under their administrations that the United States would be willing to invest considerable resources for a permanent presence, but that that presence has to be NATO, has to be multinational, and that we, they would develop that uh, in, in tandem with our NATO allies. Rather than just unilaterally say, we're going to do it on our own and then hope you'll match us, I think they can right away right now say, we believe in a NATO mission, a permanent basing of NATO troops there, and we are willing to contribute our share of that along with you. Europe isn't, ha there's no consensus in Europe that a permanent presence is a good idea. And so really, first of all, the request for a permanent presence is coming from a small number of countries in Europe to the United States, not to the NATO alliance, because people understand that the likelihood of the NATO alliance agreeing to a permanent presence in Central and Eastern Europe is virtually zero. And so we can, brainstorm on potential negotiations like that. I mean, the first part of your question is right, that we have an array of political candidates on the left and the right that are prepared to look at that as a very viable next step in US presence in Europe. Whether or not anyone will actually do that if he or she is elected remains to be seen. But in reality, they're, both sides are talking about it. It's a common talking point. you know. And I think we'll see more of that as we move through our election. 
But when the European piece is less certain to me. I mean, I, I don't see any appetite inside the NATO alliance to move in that direction. And so the question for the next US president is, are you A, prepared to do this, just writ large, but B, are you prepared to do it if it creates added friction inside the NATO alliance? And particularly with the one country that is providing considerable amount of leadership right now, and that's Germany. Because it's clear that Chancellor Merkel is not going to move in that direction, and in fact is quite opposed to it. So do you want to have more friction with Germany at a time when, frankly, we really need Germany in the game on all fronts? And you're going to do it because you believe it's the right thing to do in the face of Russian uh, threats and aggressive behavior. I don't know. So I, I just I, this is all to say that it's it's complicated. But I, the one thing that I think we can take off the table is dangling it in front of a group. If everyone in NATO wanted it, sure, you could say we're ready to deliver Europe. If you deliver ABC, we'll do X, Y, Z. But you can't even begin to have that conversation because two thirds of the alliance are going to come back and say it's okay. We don't need the permanent presence. Mm -hmm. A persistent president presence is just fine by us. Julie, would you agree that um, that the the momentum in the Pentagon, you know, which is a big aircraft carrier and doesn't turn quickly, but that uh, I've been sensing for the last eighteen months this sort of a really strong shift of planning resources and attention back to Europe for a lot of reasons. You and I were former denizens of the bureaucracy and also probably students, but I mean, I think there's a symmetry to dealing with the Russian challenge that's attractive to the army if you're talking bureaucratic politics. Uh, it's, a, it's an old but familiar, comfortable thing for the bureaucracy. But do you see this shift as well? And do you see that creating new um, momentum that would help deal with, uh, that would help deal with some of, the, some of the, those in the alliance who might not otherwise um, you know, accept such more robust proposals for the US military capacity going to Europe? In other words, this, there's this, this momentum is, has a lot of, uh, weight behind it. Now back to Europe. It's going to be hard to stop or shift in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. No, there. I mean, Europe's back. I mean, uh, you know, when when we were in government, I mean, <laughs> in the Europe NATO shop, we were always, you know, kind of second fiddle to the rebalance team, you know, and we were over in a corner. Don't take the BCTs away, and people laughed and said, you know, why would you possibly need so much force posture in Europe? Yeah. Pat me on the head, Julie, go away. We're focusing <laughs> on the re. And now, you know, everybody and their brother, the think tanks and the U.S. government and half of the Pentagon's re-engaged. I mean, we're seeing high-level visits. We're seeing idea generation, pol policy formulation, ERI. I mean, all sorts of stuff. We can argue it's not enough. But there is momentum. And you know, somebody like Jim Townsend, who's been there for the entire Obama administration, you know, has gone through waves where you know, he sat in a dark corner and you know, not many people were listening. And now he gets more time with the secretary, more trips. Um, so it's, we're definitely on an upswing where you know, Europe's front and center, I think it'll stay that way. And you're right, the services have their own motivations to keep Europe front and center as well. Um, but the, the big debate is, uh, well, two things, obviously with the NATO alliance, how that plays out, but also with the White House uh, that isn't, is there in theory, but has some disagreements about how far it wants to take some of these initiatives. 
I very much agree with Julie's accurate description of the way things are right now. But I think there's two key changes. One is, right now you have an administration that is not willing to make that case, that is not willing to strongly advocate and try to persuade the allies to make this type of long-term commitment to the frontline states in the East. And the second point is, there are some creative and innovative ways for NATO to have a permanent presence that should be a, a reasonable compromise among friends. Um, for example, one of the recommendations I've made is that NATO should establish in Lithuania a national training center like the one that we have in Fort Irwin. This would create a brigade-sized force of NATO experts that would be training in op for opposition force tactics using opposition-type uh, equipment and simulations. Um, and thus, it would be a training facility, but it would not be a garrison base. It would be a training facility uh, for that. There would be that permanent presence of the brigade, but it would also increase the readiness across the alliance because you would have regular alliance troops rotating into that base and improving their readiness through really hard-nosed, realistic, robust training exercises, not the tabletop exercises that NATO's been doing for two decades. And overall, it gives us a permanent presence of a small enough size, but that really creates credible deterrence and improves the readiness of NATO's military forces. I, 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 totally, totally, I totally agree with this. <clears throat> uh, I, I, I would hope that we're moving towards uh, permanent presence. Uh, sometimes, sometimes the countries, countries uh, that need it most don't make their case very well, but they're still right. Uh, so I, I, I just hope the United States shows leadership and tells the Europeans that America sees European security and defense as one. And it's, you know, you cannot pick and choose and, and go ahead and do the right things. And one of the right things to do is permanent uh, stationing. I just want to add one thing. Uh, on the elections. I think for once the European the politicians and the elites are doing the right thing. They're not sending hopes uh, of who they want to pick as president of the United States. Because I think the message is you will have to work with the president that you get. And it's a good moment to influence the next administration by making clear that one, America is the number one most important ally. Two, we want to build a stronger relationship. Three, we will work with you to figure out all the security threats that we have. Four, we will work with you to, uh, to uh, push back on, on, on Russia. That's what the Europeans should be doing. But for now, at least, I don't see Europeans wishing, you know, sending messages who they wish. We can have our own <clears throat> opinions. I have some very strong views. Who I would like, doesn't matter. Europeans have to understand. you work with the president that you get. Can I, can I just make one point? Uh, I think when we talk about uh, US force posture in Europe, sometimes I get the impression that people think that when we took the BCTs out of Europe in 2012, we put them somewhere else, that they're sitting over in Asia or in Australia, or that they're on call. They're in a garage somewhere uh, at some base hanging out. We forget that we have reduced the size of our force, and that there's a limited number of forces and capabilities that are available. And the next president, whoever comes in, may in his or her heart of hearts really want to have permanent presence in Europe. But he or she will also have to accept the trade-offs that come with doing that. Yeah. In an environment where we have limited resources and limited forces, and every single region in the world complaining that it doesn't have enough US force posture. So I just got back from Israel yesterday, <laughs> heard the same thing there. Last month, 
I was in UAE and Jordan, same thing there. You can go to China and hear from or the neighborhood, not from China, but all of our partners and allies <laughs> saying you don't have enough presence. You haven't delivered on the rebalance. Where is it? Why aren't you doing more? Now Central and Eastern Europe saying the same thing. So it, I, you know, Personally, I'd love to see permanent presence in Europe. I hope we head in that direction. But I think we also have to be clear-eyed about the fact that the reassurance piece is off the charts, the reassurance calls in every region of the world. And we will have to ultimately determine where there's going to be some give and take as we posture our forces around the world. So just a slight reminder that it's a limited set. Those two BCTs aren't waiting to be redeployed to Europe. Great point. There's a, there's a global set of demands. Our European friend in the back, and then we'll come to the front. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Peter Michael Nielsen from the Danish Embassy. Um, going back to Russia and sort of um, what might hopefully not be next, um, we are, of course, uh, bolstering uh, the deterrence of the alliance. Uh, we are focusing very much on the Baltic states, and I think that's all very correct, and we believe it's all very correct. But what we have, of course, seen until now is that the problems we've had with Russia has been outside the alliance. It's in Ukraine, it's in Syria, and that, of course, makes one sort of speculate whether also the next problem will be outside the alliance or also could be outside the alliance and might be in a place where we have also previously seen uh, Russian interest and continues to see it in the Balkans. And I just wanted to hear your comments on that, maybe also in relation to uh, the enlargement of uh, the alliance with Montenegro. Thank you. So we're, we are worried about Russian moves outside the alliance as well as right. inside. Well, I think the uh, Norwegian author, Rolf Tomnes, uh, spoke directly about this, um, and in a way that's applicable not just to Norway, but to all of the NATO's alliance members, and that Rolf says that Norway has to stay committed to contribute to international operations abroad, because these will most likely be more rather than less in demand for such operations in the future. So I think the gray zone um, between outside of NATO's borders is, a, is very much a contested issue, um, and I think one of the weaknesses of the Wales Summit is that while there was a lot of rhetoric about defending NATO's Article 5, uh, very little was said about how NATO's efforts and interest uh, outside of NATO's borders and that NATO and its members uh, have very much uh, valuable and strategic interest in helping build the resilience of these countries outside the alliance in dealing with instability, but also specifically with dealing with Russian agitation and information warfare within their borders to destabilize them. Uh, unfortunately, part of Russia's strategy under Putin is Russia wants weak, destabilized neighbors, and I think these are not in NATO's interest, and we should do everything we can to boost up some of these countries to help them keep away from this uh, negative Russian influence. So prediction, where's Russia's next move? Moldova. I'm going to ask each panelist, and then I have my own thought. Any other thoughts, though, on? Libya. That was mine. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to crowdsource this. That was my thought, too. Maybe from Egypt. <laughs> from Egypt, oh, dear God. Ambassador? I don't know. You want to be undiplomatic? No, well, I don't want to be un undiplomatic, but, you know, they have a, multiple choices, and I just don't want to guess. Libya it is. Uh, yes. <laughs> Question in the front row here from our. I'll go with Libya. Is, are we now the McLaughlin group? <laughs> Bandwagoning. Hello, Air Commodore Tenenhoff. I'm uh, the Dutch Defense uh, Attaché. Uh, first of all, thanks for your thoughts. Uh, really good. Uh, 
The thing I have is uh, this discussion started off by uh, uh, putting attention on the rift between EU and the uh, US. EU is not doing enough, and I agree it's time to put the money where our mouth is. But the reality is, even though we put the money in, and even though we put the money in enough tomorrow, it will still take three to five years to build up a credible military. So the reality is that we're facing a period of, let's say, five years, where we have to live with this reality, that there is an, an, an unevenness in the EU. At the same time, if we focus on the rift, it will play into the Russian card. So it's time to show united resolve. And I hear that only on the sideline with Julie, eh, you mentioned <coughs> Brexit and the scenario, and we also see in Spain movements, eh, we see internal rift in e EU, uh, we see the, the discussions over here in the US. Uh, shouldn't it, isn't it time to, to put this also more on a comprehensive uh, table? Because I think we're uh, very much on the scale that we have to show uh, unicism in what we do. That is our best way to overcome this reality of the five-year gap, as I call it. But also don't focus on defense uh, alone. Because we see this crisis, migrants, we see the internal divisions in Europe. And uh, I really think that's a, kind, a little bit underlooked, and we should be uh, much more focusing on this. Thoughts? Eric Commodore, thank you so much. That's an excellent question. I agree that the problem of capabilities, the reduced capabilities, the gap in capabilities, and the gap in readiness are very big and require long-term solutions and long-term investments. Uh, but at the same time, I think the threat is so imminent um, and is, is so serious that we need to take some steps to significantly increase deterrence right now. And I think there are creative ways that we can do this as, long, as well as continue to improve uh, our long-term uh, improvement of capabilities. One excellent example of this, um, some of the ones I just mentioned that we, are things we could, steps we could take before the Warsaw Summit, but uh, our colleague Ian Brzezinski uh, has a great idea, which is uh, the month before the Warsaw Summit, there will be the Anaconda exercise in Poland. Um, and right now the U.S. has contributed about 13,000 troops, uh, along with the Poles, one of the largest contingents for that exercise. But Ian has come up with a great idea that in addition to that, uh, it would make sense for other NATO countries to double their contributions to that and perhaps have our own NATO SNAP exercise and make Anaconda twice as big and to show that our readiness could be ramped up in very short notice and send a much more positive and stronger message of deterrence to the East. I mean, I, I think we do overlook the kind of the full spectrum approach that we could be pursuing. And I think if there was ever a case to try and pursue again after decades of trying to bring the EU and NATO together, it's now. Because a lot of the threats that we face from Russia are not necessarily conventional, but really obviously are in other spheres, in cyber and strategic communications, incitement, energy. And there are reasons why you would want to develop policies and initiatives through an EU 
EU lens and lash those up with NATO capabilities because there's actual capacity there. Uh, unfortunately, though, I haven't seen that much traction. I mean, the, the new uh, initiative for NATO to get more uh, engaged in the Aegean uh, and take a more active approach, they're lashing that up with Frontex, obviously. But that's just a tiny baby step. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could be doing so much more. And if we don't seize on this window uh, to try and pursue greater EU-NATO cooperation, then I guess I'll kind of give up at some point. I mean, th there, there's really a case to be made because, in essence, what we need is the capacities that both institutions can bring to bear. Yeah, I, you know, I think there's a little confusion here. I, I would say that uh, building up an EU force is not an alternative to make NATO stronger and making, making uh, getting the European allies understand that they have to do more. But my sense is, as I talk to people here in town, I mean, the United States is ready to give Europe a security uh, credit or whatever, I mean, a bridge loan if you want. If, it, if the Europeans say, look, we, we're going to get serious about this, it's going to take three, four years, I think Americans would say, wow, that's exactly what we want to hear. And you know what? If you're in three, four years, you are where you are supposed to be. That's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll are so pleased and willing to, to give you that three, four years. But they don't see that movement. They don't see the political will. And once again, this really is not a military issue. This is basically fundamentally a political issue. Yes, another question. Um, Peter Flory here in the second row. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Peter Flory with uh, Kinetic North America. First, Julie, um, uh, as a former Europe person at the Pentagon, congratulations to you and Jim Townsend and others uh, who've kept the lights on uh, when uh, when nobody was even looking for the switch because uh, that was really important because that means when when it was time to pivot back, there was actually something to pivot back uh, back to in some critical mass. Um, the question is th this report, which I haven't had a chance to read but looks excellent, is about mostly strengthening European defense capabilities, which is a, a good thing in capital letters. Um, and when I was at NATO working in the capabilities area, that's what we worked on with a reasonable degree of confidence that if we could get the capabilities ready, there was actually a strategy uh, against which to work it. I mean, there was an anvil against which to use the, use the hammer. And I'm less confident of, of that now, and, and I'm particularly concerned that when you look at, at Europe's response to the recent crises, it's not just a, a, a NATO strategy, but Europe has to have a strategy too. I mean, you don't have to believe in leading from behind to believe that Europe has to have its own strategy, and it has to have a forward strategy, particularly for dealing with its southern region, um, without which, I mean, to use a, a European football metaphor, uh, you know, every crisis immediately becomes a penalty kick. And from all those who played or have kids who play soccer, you know, with a penalty kick, the odds are usually against the, the, the goalkeeper. So I'm curious, with everything that's going on, and particularly coming after uh, the Munich conference uh, earlier uh, uh, this month, which I would say was the worst meeting in Munich since 1938, uh, do you see... Do you, do you see uh, a possibility of Europe developing a strategy, a plan? It's not going to be uh, seamless. It's not going to be coherent. We've talked a lot about different approaches, about different uh, uh, values. Um, but without that, it's going to be very hard to maintain a NATO strategy, and it's, it's going to be very hard for the United States to help Europe in dealing with these challenges. So I'm just wondering how you see the prospects there. Thank you. 
I think it's, it would be enormously difficult. I mean, obviously, the EU is now in the process of churning out its global strategy, which is going to be out this summer. Um, and it's the first time since 2003 that it's had an in-depth look at its threat environment and the capabilities that it can bring to bear. Um, it had an evaluation of the implementation of the O3 uh, strategy in 08, but other than that, the EU has never really stepped back to take it. And, and my goodness, I mean, think about what's changed since 2003. Everything uh, fundamentally has changed. The problem with this exercise is it's coming at such a bad time, and it will highlight in many ways everything we've talked about here this morning, and that is the divisions within Europe, the divisions between Europe and the United States, the values questions, solidarity questions, the capability gaps. Uh, it's going to be tough to write this report, and my fear is it's going to be high on ambition, but it's the lofty ideas and goals it may lay out will not be matched with today's reality. Uh, and so my, I, I actually, I'm finishing a piece um, on this question of how Europe should take this on. And my kind of overarching theme is keep it simple. I mean, first and foremost, lay out the strategic environment, help Europeans understand the environment in which they're operating. I don't think everyone grasps how many challenges are, you know, they're facing. But then put forward some very kind of low-cost, high-impact initiatives that could help Europe on, particularly the, in the area of resilience. I think there are things that Europe can be doing better. But yeah, will there be a fundamental grand strategy that Europeans will rally around at this moment with Britain potentially preparing to leave the EU? No. Uh, so unfortunately, this should have been done years ago. Um, although if you had done it in 2012, let's say you wouldn't have seen, you know, with Putin's return to power, kind of all that's happened in the last couple of years. So it's hard because you're always playing catch up. I mean, it's 2014 was just a year of surprises. In addition to the annexation of Crimea, you know, the rise of ISIS, you had the Ebola outbreak, then 2015, the migration crisis. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And so trying to carve out kind of a comprehensive strategy that enables you to deal with all those challenges is just an enormous undertaking at a time, again, when people are losing faith in the institutions in Brussels. So my short answer is no. Uh, you know, I don't think we're going to see a really well articulated strategy all wrapped up with a bow on it that will drive policy going forward. Unfortunately, we may be stuck in this kind of penalty kick environment for quite some time. If I could just say, resilience, I think, is also the key to what you and Andres were talking about earlier in terms of the values gap. Yeah. I think it's not that countries don't want to adhere to these values. It's just it's just harder to do when you're, when right. you're newer in the game. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, let me, let me, well, first of all, I too want to thank uh, Julie and, and Jim for uh, for uh, uh, keeping the, the lights on, but I'd here, also here. like to thank you and, and, and Jorge and others for holding the candle while the the, 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 the lights were flickering. So, okay. So 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 uh, let me say this: maybe, maybe the United States uh, should should try and teach the Europeans to uh, walk and chew gum at the same time. If, if, if a Russian threat and, and, uh, and uh, attack is handled as well and as professionally as we're handling the refugee crisis, we're done. And I don't mean to be cynical because the way I look at the, the way we, we the handle the, the refugee crisis, I look at it from a security perspective and it's, it's, it's devastating. 
So I, I just want to say that <clears throat> that it leads us back to the 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 beginning of our our, our our conversation. Unless Europe understands that its security, whether it's the Russian threat from the east and whether they they the the the, the, the threat from the south, and both have both military and other elements that have to be put together, unless. Europe as a whole understands that you cannot divide European security into blocks, but if there is one European security, then, then, then we're in real trouble. And that's where I, I do believe that uh, besides the military aspects, I think the United States has a huge role, a political role, in order to push the Europeans in that direction. And don't leave it to countries like the Netherlands and Denmark and others uh, to push for this. By the way, let me also tell you, the debate in Europe is much deeper than you think. So I'm not a loner here. I speak here as part of the European the group of Europeans who actually are really worried. And so I, I, I want to make clear that my voice is not a lonely voice. It's not just not strong enough. And you need to help those who believe that the transatlantic relationship is the single most important relationship for our future. You need to help us. Well, sorry. <laughs> we have time for one more quick question and uh, a quick answer. So yes, this gentleman right here. Thank you. Uh, Noah Williams, <laughs> Plowshares Fund. Uh, Prime Minister Medvedev in Munich recently said that the U.S.-Russian relationship was approaching a new Cold War. And with both countries investing billions of dollars now in uh, nuclear modernization, I wondered if you could comment on uh, long term whether that you see that as a destabilizing uh, factor whether that can lead to you know more escalation in Eastern Europe or if we're better served uh, focusing on conventional uh, reinforcement of Europe. Thank you. Well, it's, it's terrifying. I mean, the the rhetoric they're using on nuclear weapons, on nuclear doctrine, the way they talk about escalate to de-escalate, the changes they've made to their posture, um, the flights they're using, um, you know, the probing that's being conducted, and just across the board. Um, and this comes at an unfortunate time because, of course, with this administration and this president that started out pursuing the Prague agenda and trying to get some of that to take root inside the NATO alliance, we're now, you know, doing a complete 180. NATO's now, you know, in the process of having conversations about NATO nuclear policy in ways that we never envisioned uh, just seven years ago. Uh, and so we're talking about turning the lights back on. I mean, the folks, you know, talk to somebody like Fred Fredrickson inside the alliance. You know, he felt like he was sitting in a corner, not going mm -hmm. to many meetings. Now he's kind of top of the pops, you know, trying to manage this issue from inside the NATO alliance. So, uh, yes, it's disturbing. It's worrisome. I, I don't think we're, we're having the types of conversations we need to be having with our allies right now about this. I think we'll get there. I think this summit will take us kind of next step. I mean, obviously, we don't want it to be a runaway train. But there's some very disturbing moves and rhetoric coming out of Moscow that should keep us awake at night. And we've got to start talking about it and figuring out not an overreactive policy or positioning, but we've got to start having conversations that, again, we didn't think we'd be having four, five, six, seven years ago. What Russia says uh, is really a, a warped view of reality. Because let's be very clear, this new Cold War is initiated and perpetuated by the decisions being made by Putin's government in Moscow. 
Um, it is Russia that is violating NATO airspace. It is Russia that has kidnapped a member from a NATO country. It is Russia that has violated arms control treaties and is producing and developing uh, cruise missiles that are banned for many decades now. It is Russia that has invaded Crimea. It is Russia that invaded Georgia. And it is uh, the European countries and the United States were very happy to disarm, to cut our defense spending, to reduce all of our de defense capabilities, and continue to, we wish to do that again, but we are forced to not do so because of the direct actions that Russia is doing now and creating this new Cold War and environment of threat against the West. Ru Putin's government has made direct threats against Sweden and Finland, threatening them not to get closer to NATO. They've even, Russia has even made direct threats against Denmark and Norway to uh, not get closer to NATO, NATO missile defense. Uh, is they're the ones that are having this very aggressive and confrontational <coughs> relationship, and they're the ones that need to change it. Well, let, let, me, let, me just, uh, let me just say this. Uh, what really disturbs me, uh, yes, I, I mean, the, the, the relationship is terrible. Uh, but I did not see the forceful rebuttal of this, uh, uh, this comment. And, you know, I, I think we were kind of, kind of very cautious because uh, we were pinning our, our hopes uh, to the Syria agreement at the same time. I mean, that's a, that's a problem. I mean, he should have been told blunt and clear by maybe, I don't, I don't know what went on in that room, but he should have been told, well, thank you for delivering Mr. Putin's message. Now, our message to Mr. Putin is exactly what Jorge just said. And this should have, the right act should have been read to him. And I just don't see the forceful pushback on, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are you telling us? You are telling us that, that we got you into, we got the world into this mess, and then he should have been told, uh, told very blunt and clear about Ukraine, about, the, about teasing the Finns, the, the Swiss, as the war had just said. So that's, that's really my problem. And by the way, let me, let me say this. I'm, I'm totally surprised. Five years ago, I remember there was a meeting, uh, and I remember Mike McFall was there, and, and he was pinning his hope uh, to, to the, the real difference between Medvedev and Putin. And we from Eastern Europe, we, we, we told him, <coughs> for, for, for heaven's sake, he is just, he's a puppet, no more. And that's the way you have to read this. A puppet of Putin came to Munich, which I agree was really, who, who used the language? You, you, you used the language. It was terrible, by the way. Uh, maybe not as bad as 38, but, <laughs> but it, yeah, maybe the worst sense. But I just want to, I, I want to say that I, it's, it's once again political. I did not see the strong, powerful pushback. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, buddy. You're, you're talking to the wrong crowd. And unless we do that, uh, uh, they will not get it. Well, uh, I wanted to thank everyone for being part of this conversation. Uh, thanks to our panelists, and thanks very much to Alan McArthur and the Airbus Group for their partnership in allowing us to do this kind of really important work. Stay tuned. You'll see more in this space, and thanks again for coming. <laughs>